0: What's that thing called? The, the chicken stuffed into turkeys, the turkey duck? Like a-
1: I don't know if there's an actual name for that monstrosity that people build during
2: Thanksgiving. <laughs> no, I- there totally is. There totally is. Turducken. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a real thing? That That is the official term is turducken. Yes.
1: I learn something new literally every time Richard comes on the podcast. Welcome to Floor 9. I am your host Scott Elchison. With me as always is my co-host Adam Simon. Adam, how you doing? Doing great. Doing great. I want to kick off this episode with a question from the Twitterverse. Again, it's about your car because this is summertime. Adam, what do you do in traffic? sitting there usually <laughs> <laughs> got it so you have a bit more like enjoyable experience versus trying to optimize across three different mapping software oh that i you see what out you're of saying the traffic. i see what you're saying
2: no 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 i mean if if you know no i i usually whatever route i'm planning i i stick to that uh, sometimes obviously it reroutes you and occasionally i will if if it's really not moving and it's like on a highway or something i will uh you know opt to pull off even if it's going to take a little longer just because it's more fun to be moving
1: (laughs) yeah i agree with you in that statement of the notion of movement feels like progress even though sometimes it's (laughs) it's not uh so i usually try and find a way in which i can get moving
2: that should be that should be an option in your your mapping software, actually, like, <laughs> I don't care if it takes longer, make uh, me feel like it's they, <laughs> going it's taking less time.
1: <laughs> that's all right. Well, that's a freebie for, uh, you know, whoever can implement the first Apple Google ways. Uh, let us know. Well, Today, we have some great uh, news topics, specifically in the OTT category. And then from there, we're going to go into a conversation where our very own Richard Yao is going to join us on essentially the future of social media uh, and how we view that happening over the next uh, couple of years here. So just to kick things off with the news, um, Adam, first up, we have news from Disney. And the headline here is Disney plans to raise ESPN Plus subscriptions cost uh, for a second time, so they are going from five ninety nine to six ninety nine a month, and this comes off the back of of an announcement where they just got rights to uh, additional content including deals with the n h l the p g a the spanish soccer league uh and a deal with the all England lawn tennis club uh which <laughs> is notably for wimbledon content uh seems reasonable uh you know. Yeah.
2: You know, I think we don't talk uh, a lot about ESPN Plus uh, when we talk about OTT and and streaming, um, but it is, I think, a slow burn of a strategy for Disney. This is an interesting thing because all of the content that they've really been adding to ESPN Plus, uh, as as most of the content on ESPN Plus historically, is more niche sports content that – is never going to show up on an ESPN cable channel. Um, but if you care about Wimbledon, uh, you know, you can get Wimbledon for $6.99 a month. Um, and uh, there are, it's, it's about adding incremental, you know, a few hundred thousand fans here, a few hundred thousand fans there with these deals. And eventually they will, you know, I think get have a, a, large, a large enough portion of, of sports fans that it will start eventually to make sense to move over some of the bigger American sports that, that dominate ESPN on cable. The other thing is that, uh, notably, the Disney bundle that includes Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus, uh, that price is not changing. So this also is encouraging uh, folks to lean into that Disney bundle, which is definitely something that they want. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's about con- you know, again, building out that slow base of sports fans while converting more and more people to that bundle.
1: And I feel like this is what they say uh, that the classic line about how things slowly, slowly, slowly build, and then all of a sudden, like there's a cliff. Um, yep. As ESPN starts to just collect more and more content, uh, we can see a lot of a lot of that attention that would be traditionally on linear cable television just easily slide it into uh, the ESPN Plus service.
2: Yep, and this is a a different strategy than Disney is taking globally. Uh, This is very unique because uh, to the US because in the US, ESPN on cable does have so many uh, rights to the big American sports uh, where they don't necessarily have that outlet in other parts of the world. So for example, in LATAM, they are going with a Star Plus subscription that costs a little bit more money, but gives you access to the soccer uh, matches there, uh, which is the most important sport. So, um, that's a new thing, but they're, because they're not competing with themselves in those markets. Um, and eventually America will, the strategy in America will catch up too.
1: So next up, we have, uh, some numbers coming in from the worldwide premiere of black widow. They have raked in about $218 million worldwide for the premiere. It launched on both Disney's premier access as well as in theaters. Uh, so notably it was 80 million at the domestic Box office. On top of that, 60 million was made from the Disney Plus Premier Access. I would say that that's a pretty close match between the Disney Plus Premier Access and actually going to theaters uh, for the domestic, you know, viewing portion of the service. So it seems like there's really a lot of interest in Premier Access for these titles
2: well there's a lot of interesting stuff in this one press release um so uh, first of all notably this is the first time disney has released premiere access numbers for any of the films that they've released on premiere access um and that's that's notable right because one thing that has happened in this transition to streaming is that we don't really have hard numbers from from a lot of streaming premieres um I think $60 sounds super impressive. Obviously, they think it's super impressive. Uh, I think they wanted to sort of bolster Marvel as a brand as like this is still a a brand, an IP brand that can open big uh, even in in a hybrid opening like this where it is box office and premier access. But notably… So that $60 million only translates to 2 million homes, um, which is uh, about 2% of the number of homes that have access to Disney+. Plus. So that's actually a pretty small conversion rate, uh, but... In the raw, the raw dollars look great. And I think that that's the the, actually speaking to the strength of this strategy. They make way more money off those 2 million homes than they would have if those 2 million homes actually went out to the theater. Um, And I think that that's really what Disney is trying to highlight here is that this hybrid strategy, they're still maximizing some revenue off of the theatrical release. But even the folks who are staying home, they're making that fewer people are doing it and they're making a higher percentage of revenue per for, from each of those households. Um, so, you know, I think what this, this tells us is that Disney considers Premier Access successful enough that I think it's going to stick around. That uh, we should expect probably more of these hybrid releases from Disney. Um, I think, you know... The, the next, uh, I believe the next Marv- big Marvel movie is uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. I would not at all be surprised if if that also is released in this hybrid strategy, and we might see numbers from it again. Okay. There was a question as to would Black Widow be as big of a Marvel opening as other Marvel movies. Uh, I think Disney wanted to basically say, yes, it is. And it, here's, here's how our hybrid strategy is playing out.
1: To that point, there just seems to be a lot of potential growth for disney to capitalize on more of their disney plus audience for these premieres and um i look at that as like a real you know media moment or opportunity uh for brands to be thinking about is like how can you start to surround these you know day and date releases both online and in theaters um because there's attention being driven there um and so i think what's the ancillary or shoulder content around that event Uh, I think unlocks a very interesting media moment for brands to start thinking about.
2: Yeah. And, you know, another interesting development of the past couple of weeks is we also saw Disney extend the premier access branding to their theme park in in, uh, outside of Paris, Uh, basically as a way to, for the first time uh, in a Disney park, pay to get to the front of the line uh, of a ride faster. Um, That's very popular in other theme parks. Disney has held off on that. They're really rethinking a lot of the logistics of the parks as they reopen post-COVID. COVID. And I think the fact that this is that experience is also branded premier access indicates that premier access is not just about day and date theatrical releases. Um, it is some, it is something that they, that they are setting up to be a more premium tier of every Disney experience sort of across the channels that they have with consumers. So, you know, we've been sort of watching this and thinking about this for a while. I do think that Maybe it'll happen later this year, but maybe it'll happen next year. At some point, we see a more premium tier of Disney Plus that gets you these premiere access movies, that gets you these premiere experiences in the theme parks, and maybe gets you some other stuff as well. Um, That's what I'm looking for for from Disney in the next year or so. They really are, I think they they had been planning to push further into the high end pre-pandemic obviously that was disrupted a little bit because of covid i think that now that disney is saying with with all of their their uh, their press releases we are back we are in business i think it's it's time to see to really you know take take the brand out for a spin and see how high how premium they can get right. um with some of their offerings we i think it's
1: I, th- I think we can call it here and say that you know this is going to be their bundle.
2: It's the super bundle, and I think it's starting to take shape uh, in a little bit of a different way than we might have predicted, but it's starting to take shape.
1: Absolutely. Well, let's round out our news section here uh, with an update from Apple. So Apple uh, is now planning a buy now, pay later service to a rival, uh, a firm and other competitors in the space. So how this is going to work is that uh, when you pay with Apple Pay, uh, you have the option to essentially pay in in installments over time. You can have four uh, payments with no interest over four months, or you can have um, multiple different payments across multiple different months that'll actually have interest. Uh, so it's just one more product that Apple's offering you know to, one, encourage the use of their services. Uh, we know Apple gets a percentage of the payment when a user uses Apple Pay. So obviously, it's a way for them to incentivize
2: people to use Apple Pay, gets them more services revenue. This is interesting because uh, it's not tied specifically to the Apple Card, even though it is powered by Goldman Sachs, um, which indicates that it will work with any card inside of Apple Pay, which some credit cards already have this functionality built in in their own backend and their own apps. Um, but this would sort of give that power to any credit card, which is interesting. Um, some credit cards might not like that, but for the ones that don't already have this functionality, it probably makes them more likely to be used versus something like a firm or Klarna that is routing around credit cards entirely. So, in some ways, this is kind of a sustaining innovation for the credit card industry. Um, it's a little confusing as to how this is going to piggyback, you know, where Goldman Sachs sits in that entire stack uh, if it's piggybacking on top of another card. Uh, but um, you know, I think the the thing here is that Apple clearly sees that this is uh, something consumers want, especially younger consumers really love c- companies like Affirm and Klarna. I think this is about driving Apple Pay adoption, as you said, above everything else. Um, and I think it's uh, an interesting indicator of where they might go in the future, that Apple Pay is not just about a digital version of a credit card, but that Apple might layer their own services between the user and those credit cards
1: knowing that Apple has built something like this, what about Shopify? They, they've they announced a lot of innovation with ShopPay, notably integrating it with um, Google and Facebook. Do you think this is something that the Shopify, you know, team could integrate into their pay product as well?
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, we already know Shopify has native integrations with Klarna and Affirm. So if you are, you know, as a merchant on Shopify, you can add them as options at checkout. I Suspect that at some point uh, shopify will either launch their own version natively to sort of save on some of those transaction fees and keep some of that those transactions on their own platform or uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they maybe acquired a firm let's say uh, <laughs> I, think that, I think that would be within the realm of possibility um right. I'm not sure you know off the top of my head if the 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 what a firm's valuation is and what shopify's cash reserves are, but I could see something like that happening for sure,
1: yeah, it makes sense. I I think for me, the only question is like what their priorities are between essentially working with like merchants and making them successful and then establishing a relationship with the end consumer uh, as like Shopify itself. Right. Kind of, Kind of having that balance, but uh, it'll be interesting just to see you know what what their strategy is and how they approach the market.
2: Yeah, but in a lot of ways, Shop Pay and Apple Pay are sort of at the forefront of the payment landscape right now. So I think this is something that is clearly popular with consumers, and that's why both of them, I think, would Apple's is moving, and I would not be surprised if Shopify also moved.
1: Absolutely. So that's going to wrap up this week's news section. For the main conversation, we'll be bringing on Richard to talk about the future of social media. But before that, here is this week's Magna Minute.
3: Hi, this is Stephanie Morales from the Magna Audience Intelligence Team. Today, I'm going to share a few highlights from our latest Media Access Quarterly, also known as the MAQ. In this report, we measure how consumers access technology and how growth in these segments can affect viewing or overall media behavior. One of the first things we look at are traditional MVPD subscribers, or more importantly, the ongoing subscriber losses, otherwise known as cord cutting. In first quarter, 1.7 million subscribers cut the cord, the largest decline since first quarter 2020, which was mostly pre-COVID-19. We predict that just 57% of households currently subscribe to a traditional cable or satellite provider, and that will fall to below 50% by 2023, about two years from now. On the other hand, we estimate 94 million, or 74%, of households will be subscribed to at least one streaming service by the end of this year. In this report, we also measure the ongoing stable growth of connected TV devices, of which smart TV sets are the most prominent. As of second quarter, 59% of U.S. homes own at least one smart TV set. Additionally, nearly 92 million homes own a standalone plug-in device, of which are majority Roku and Amazon Fire devices, which represent over 80% of the market. Smart speakers such as Amazon's Echo, Google Nest, and Apple HomePod are experiencing rapid growth with over 106 million speakers in 44 million homes, which is equivalent to more than two per household. Lastly, PCs have seen a bit of a renaissance since COVID-19 as computers went from household devices to an individual device as schooling and work moved to remote. In second quarter, we still observe households with four or more computers continuing to grow, while those with only one were the only segment to decline. We will continue to keep a close eye on PC ownership as the fall approaches and schools return to in-person learning and more companies return to office.
1: Listeners, welcome to this week's main conversation and a big warm welcome to Richard Yao. Richard, how are you doing?
0: Hello, hello, hello. I love it when I talk myself onto the show. So
1: do I. (laughs) Uh, We love having you here and I want you to be on the show more often. So today we're going to be discussing the future of social media. And this stems from two things. First and foremost, your article that you wrote uh, about a week ago, titled The Divergent Future of Social Media, as well as two announcements from uh, our major social platforms. One, there was announcements from the head of Instagram, Adam Morrissey, saying that Instagram will now support vertical video. Uh, They are no longer just the square photo sharing app, as well as TikTok, on the other hand, expanding Uh, The video lengths to three minutes, kind of getting into or pushing more towards that YouTube territory. And so, like, we're seeing these shifts in social media platforms. But I want to start with Facebook and Instagram, as to me, this seems to be one of the most notable shifts uh, in essentially this, like, the core of what Instagram is. They've always been known as a photo sharing app. And now they are essentially copying the vertical video and even the recommendation algorithm that made TikTok so popular. So, what are your thoughts on this strategy going forward, Richard? Like why are they doing this?
0: Well, I think a lot of people will agree when I say that Instagram is a very shameless copycat. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not even like a dig or anything, cause leaving a very successful copycat. Right? When story blew up on Snapchat, they quickly implemented it. Rather chunkily, but it works. And that kind of at least stifled some of Snapchat's further growth. And then over the years, they gradually got advertisers on board, moving from the main feed into story format advertising. And then when TikTok started blowing up, they started testing their own short video product called Reels, which recently started rolling out and becoming more and more prominent in the actual UI of the app. So they have always been very careful about what competitors are doing and how they can really incorporate everything into their own app to keep up with what's going on, what's the latest in social media, right? Everything become a feature they can absorb in in that way. Um, But in terms of their future strategy, I think it would be fair to say that Instagram is going on in, um, social commerce. Really, as a platform, they don't make that much money from influencers. What they can do is turn those influencers into salesperson and build a whole social commerce opportunity. And over the past year or so, they've been really coming up with a lot of commerce-related features, including checkouts, including uh, product tags, and... Um, Different, even a visual search product on yep. Instagram. stores. Exactly, stores. So even the drop tab, remember the drop tap. So there has been a lot of new commerce-related features that's pushing Instagram into this, what I call the new digital mall of America, okay. essentially.
1: If Instagram then is really going to be focusing on shopping, which I think goes across a lot of different social platforms, um, and you're looking at it as essentially as this, new digital mall. I know in that announcement, Adam Orsay the head of Instagram said that they're looking at Instagram more as an entertainment app, like like the mission and goal of Instagram was always to entertain. And so how does, I guess, that vision or I guess their framing of Instagram's here, here to entertain fit into this idea of a place where um, shopping is going to be essentially like a very core pillar to the Instagram experience and essentially business model?
0: Yeah, so at first glance, you might think those are two separate things, but in reality, I don't think pursuing becoming an entertainment platform and doubling down on social commerce is mutually exclusive. In in China and some of the APEC markets, we already see this converging between entertainment and and social commerce. What the results in is what is being called shoppertainment content, where it's still entertainment content, but it's very much tied to the kind of thing you can directly buy from the content you're watching. Right. And Instagram, I think it's in a pretty good position to replicate some of the success that Taobao and uh, WeChat and even TikTok's uh, Chinese sibling, Douyin, has achieved in the APAC market. So yeah, I don't think those things are really mutually exclusive. And if anything, we know the future of social commerce is going to happen in video. And right. TikTok is already leading the way on that. So for Instagram, if they do want to be succeed in the future of social commerce, this pivot to a video, especially short phone video, is actually necessary for their future
1: why do, so i guess why do we say video why, why, why is video going to be kind of like the key um, format for social commerce moving forward
0: good question i mean you don't have to be video but video is very engaging it right. is you know it there's a reason why qvc is successful as the way <laughs> it was right yeah that's a good people, point people want to be able to see the product in action especially if there's someone who's demoing it. And the the thing with social platform is also it could be live, which adds more interaction to the mix.
2: Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I, I suspect it will work because I do not think that anybody in the US and in Western markets has, has cracked this yet. And Instagram, I think, is definitely best positioned to do that. Obviously, TikTok being the, the main competition there. Um, TikTok is growing so quickly that uh, I think they will also succeed. Um, I think, you know, Instagram has a lot of brand cachet uh, among retailers, even independent small businesses in the US. Um, so I, I suspect that a lot of brands will run similar campaigns and similar products across uh, Instagram and TikTok and probably Snapchat also if they're looking to reach uh, you know a younger demographic and the folks who are, who are on Snapchat. Um, and I think that we will actually see a lot of common strategy being rolled out across all three of those uh i think that you know the wild card is Amazon that everybody has always expected to be a major player in this market, but has so far not demonstrated that they can <laughs> actually like, ma- actually pull the the disparate parts of their organization together to actually make a, a serious play in, in video and, and commerce. Even though Amazon Live does seem like the direction they're going, it's very slow moving compared to what TikTok and Instagram and Snapchat are doing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think it, maybe a sleeping giant is a better way to to uh to think about them
1: and i think for amazon they're probably going to be going through twitch um as a channel for experimentation when it comes to shoppable content yeah
2: yeah i mean you would think but they've backed away from some of the initiatives on twitch already so um you know i think and and, and they they do have prime video which is a, a very different product from what is available on any of the other three platforms if they can ever sort of figure out how to prime video should work with the rest of amazon in terms of you know actual commerce integration
1: so that's where we see instagram heading um another major player in the social space is twitter like does twitter have a role in social commerce moving forward how are we looking at twitter's i guess like next evolution uh in the social space
0: well, Twitter is a rather interesting case. They have been kind of slow in rolling out new features over the past decade or so. They tried to go the live streaming route when MirCat first broke blew up in, in 2016. They quickly acquired an integrated Periscope. Periscope actually just got sunset, I believe, uh, earlier this year. But the live streaming feature lives on, on Twitter But so far, they haven't really been doing that much with that feature. But interestingly, over the past six months or so, they have come out with a series of creator tools to help people on Twitter, especially the people who has already built a sizable following on Twitter, to monetize their audience. So they quickly copied the social audio feature from Clubhouse to build uh, Twitter spaces, but then they also built ticketed space on top of that to help create monetize their social audio sessions. And you they also bought um newsletter platform review to presumably build their own newsletter product. Uh, they are also testing this super follow feature, which is kind of like a Patreon thing where People can pay a monthly subscription to their favorite Twitter account for exclusive access to their content. So essentially, I don't think Twitter is going to be in the arena for social commerce. The platform is more oriented towards um, into the creator economy right now. So one of my questions
1: that I have just like listening to this conversation is, you know, like the like the strategic priorities of these social companies, right? A lot of them are focused on creators, uh, you know, working with maybe small businesses, thinking about new ways in which they can develop revenues, whether that's through, you know, like, like the super follow and essentially tipping through Twitter, uh, you know, potentially Instagram taking cuts of the sales that happen through their stores. Um, Does that then play into, I guess, or impact the role like larger advertisers and like advertising will have on the business models for these organizations and essentially maybe even like the importance uh, because they are looking to expand and kind of extract direct revenues from their audience?
2: Um, I I think you can say uh, creators on Twitter's side and um, the early adopters of the, the sort of commerce on platforms like Instagram are pivoting towards uh small businesses, right? And like the Shopify uh clients of the world. Um I think that that the way that that impacts larger brands is that uh Twitter will still have very similar option options for brands. Twitter is basically becoming a news reader uh, for people and and also then also Twitter wants to be the paywall to all of the sort of paid contents that the, that people promote and discover on the platform. You can easily still put the same kinds of ads in there and it's, it won't seem out of place. I think over time, like five years from now, we might be talking about more brands creating more native branded content that lives on the platform um, as as Twitter's sort of creator, system, creator algorithms take shape. I think that will end up being more beneficial in, in the long run. Um, and similarly on Instagram, on Instagram, the idea, um, over, over the next few years of promoting things that live off platform is going to start to seem a little odd and it will make more and more sense to integrate with a storefront on Instagram. Um, you know, Snapchat's a little different. I think that Snapchat does have and will continue to have content. I think branded content also will make sense on Snapchat, um, not just commerce Instagram though I think it will be about commerce and it will be about uh, it will seem weird if there is an ad for something that is not uh, shoppable because so much of Instagram will be shoppable um, and and I think the best experience there will be some you know using a natively integrated platform something like Shopify and it doesn't mean uh, that you have to put your entire product portfolio on Instagram you should think about like, which products are you actually trying to market on the platform? And maybe those products, those SKUs, live in a Shopify store. Uh, and and that's like the, I think that becomes the native way on the platform to reach consumers.
0: Yeah, I think the social platforms are trying to diversify the revenue stream, but all of them, at the end of the day, is still free to use. And there's always the space for brands and advertisers to come in. I agree with Adam that the format they use on different social platforms will continue to evolve and become more native to each other platform.
1: So we talked about Instagram and Facebook, we talked about we talked about Instagram, we talked about Twitter. I mean, Richard, are there any other platforms or social platforms that we think we should cover about how things are shifting changing, maybe Snapchat, maybe Facebook proper
0: messaging? Well, the good news is I already wrote a whole article on it. So, <laughs> if you, if listener, if you're interested in learning more in more detail about each of the major social platforms, please check out the link in the show notes. But for this session, I would like to point out something a little bit more futuristic, looking beyond the social landscape today, okay. because we're at the lab. We, we are the lab. Offsets. So yeah, bring it on. Yeah. So what do we think about how social media is going to look like in the metaverse? Mm. Who is building the infrastructure? Who is building the social graph for the metaverse today? I think there is a clear contender, but I want you to take a guess, Scott.
1: I would have to put some money on Facebook given their previous experience in building social graphs, but, but they also own Oculus and they are actively building out oculus as a gateway for individuals to essentially be in the metaverse um another contender could be epic games uh or large or large gaming companies you know even like activision blizzard that have a sloth of you know information on the types of games people like to play and how they interact and um you know you go back looking at Epic Games, like they're looking to build out social experiences already inside of some of their games with with, with the party royale uh, islands. Uh, they have house party, you know, face to face communication of, or a video conferencing, you know, uh, application for the younger Gen Z millennial audience. Um, so between the two of
0: them, who do you think I have a better show?
1: I I I I think the easy answer is Epic Games, uh-huh. but Facebook
0: can fully count off Facebook because they do have a scale, right. And they do have a existing social right. graph,
1: and they continue to be a business powerhouse. Um, and yep. then time and time again, they go back to the data and understand how their consumers work and optimize towards that.
2: Mm-hmm. I I was just gonna say I think there's a little bit of a chicken and the egg question here of. Which started happening first? did the major social platforms start to pivot away from social and into commerce, or did younger generations start to move their social activity off of those platforms and into gaming? Um, I think both of those things are happening at the same time uh, and are sort of feeding on each other and encourage will eventually encourage more and more people to use more gaming environments as social spaces, um, because that's what's being designed as, as as social spaces these days, as opposed to the things that we call social networks. Um, so uh, I think that it's an interesting confluence of events there. I think, you know, I think Epic really wants to uh to to be the to, to own the social graph, um not just within Fortnite, but their Epic Game Store and a lot of the APIs and tools that they offer to other game developers are are set up in such a way to to do that. Um uh and and to sort of be what be that social uh, social graph that runs across multiple applications it's hard to count facebook out and yet at the same time um they're they're winning in vr right now because basically no one else is competing um and there there were some they they did have a good year but vr is still on oculus is still a, a tiny channel yep. compared to pretty much anything yep. else yep. Uh, that doesn't mean that they won't Continue to grow and continue to, to succeed there, but uh, there were some. There was a recent study that came out that ranked the made that was asking consumers if they were going to buy an AR or VR headset, who would they prefer to, to buy it from? Um, not super surprising. Apple came in at number one with something like 35% of people choosing Apple. Uh, and uh, Facebook, though, d- came in at dead last with less <laughs> than 5% of people preferring a Facebook powered headset. So, you know, we know that Apple is going to launch something probably next year in the uh, AR, VR space. Um, once there's serious competition in the market again, I think we'll have a better sense as to how well Facebook is going to perform um, because uh, they haven't. Their biggest challenge has been, honestly, making the ecosystem even large enough for major developers to yep. support it, um, which is less of a problem for companies like Sony and Apple. We don't talk about Apple as having a social network, but we uh, we did a little bit in the in our reviews of iOS 15 when they announced it at WWDC. And I do think that if Apple is going to make a serious play into AR and VR, they will not want Facebook to be the social graph. I think that's pretty right, obvious, right. Uh, and or or Epic for that matter. Yep. There's a non-zero chance that the uh, battle for control of the metaverse ends up being between Epic and Apple, and that that is why Epic actually blew up that relationship because they sort of saw that coming and uh, wanted to get ahead of it, basically, uh, and throw the first punch. Again, we don't talk about Apple in that way right now, but I don't. They have enough data and enough uh, social connections to to use use iMessage to build something, uh, which uh, I think is you know, certainly on a five-year time horizon, we shouldn't count them out.
0: Yeah. Um, The other case I will make against Facebook in this regard is that their most metaverse-looking program right now is the Facebook Horizon VR scene, which feels largely divorced from the rest of the Facebook. Yes, I know you need to log in with a Facebook account, but Compared to what Epic has been doing, which is actually integrating House Party with Fortnite and using House Party as a communication channel outside the game to allow people to drop in and out out of this gaming environment, Facebook is doing now that with Oculus and um, and Facebook Horizon. So yeah. in essence. The development of metaverse is not going to be solely focused on this immersive VR experience. You have to find a way to extend different touch points into this virtual world. And on that front, I think Epic is thinking ahead and doing a better job at implementing it strategically than Facebook is today.
2: Yep, I I totally agree. And I think it's way easier to take something... Like Fortnite, that is built for 2D screens, and move it into a 3D VR AR space, than to do the reverse. And Facebook sort of jumped to the end and is trying to to well now they're not even really trying to work backwards. They actually had in some earlier uh, products that had led up to Horizon. They did have the ability to like call people in Messenger into your virtual spaces, and that's not something that exists right now. Presumably because no one was using it. Um, but you know, I think. Going in the other direction uh, is, uh, I think, a little bit of an easier transition because you have, you know, if Epic were to announce a partnership with a headset maker or to launch their own headset, they have a giant user base to sell that headset to. Um, And whereas Facebook is starting from uh, a relatively small installed base of headsets that they're trying to convince to use a specific app on those headsets. Um, So it's hard to sort of start the... social interaction flywheel with such a small with a fraction of a fraction of your users
1: it's interesting right kind of f- trying to figure out what strategy is going to be the winning strategy whether it's to building something completely new for a completely new environment or trying to potentially you know repackage and develop or shift um something that was made for let's say like the 2d world for like the 3d world and i think this also kind of has tiebacks into this idea of where our social platforms are today can these platforms continue to reinvent themselves and be as effective as a platform that was built from the ground up to to do this one thing so we, we we know tiktok changed behavior completely they were grounded in this algorithmic feed vertical video kind of sending me like those clips it's like can. Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, can they reinvent themselves to match that new type of consumer behavior?
0: Well, they have to. That's the reality of the market. User behavior changes, expectation change. adapt or die. That's first rule of business, essentially. What I think is interesting is that there's not one way to survive the future, really, like we talk about the diverging future of social media, there's different jobs to be done, different roles to fulfill. So, Twitter is not necessarily doing the same strategy as Instagram. Doesn't mean both of them won't succeed.
2: Yeah, and you know, just as a reminder, for every you know TikTok or Clubhouse that that you know new new platform that pops up and changes the trajectory of social, there are thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of others that try to do that and fail right. uh, and that we never hear from again. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's, it, it takes, it, it is certainly a source of inspiration for uh, the big players, but uh, the the number of apps that actually move the, the needle significantly are relatively small.
1: No. And I would say, and at the end of the day, Adam, to your point, it's like, are we now at a level of maturity where that's all they really become our inspiration unless you're like TikTok and you have a multi-billion dollar marketing budget to drive adoption of your platform.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that that's more of a question for venture capitalists at this point, right? Are they, cause, because if any, if, you know, if they're willing to throw enough money at it to get big fast, uh, you can, TikTok has proven, you can outrun Facebook. Uh, so, um, it's it's not out of the question. Uh, I think that might. I think the success of TikTok might spur increased investment in smaller uh, social startups because it does prove that we're not done with innovation in the right. space. Far from it. Yep.
1: I think we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, as Richard mentioned, we do have an article that, that goes uh, into more detail and more depth uh, about this divergent future for social media. So definitely go check that out. It will be linked in our show notes. Um, and Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Like I said, I'm happy to have you here. Hopefully you'll be back again uh, for another conversation.
0: Eh, we'll see about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for getting
1: me on here. Awesome. Well, listeners, that's going to wrap up our show this week. As per usual, you can find myself and Adam on Twitter at t i p p i e r for me at Adam J Simon for for Adam. Uh, you can follow the lab, which is at ipg lab, uh, and of course, uh, you know we have a newsletter, so you can go sign up for that on our medium website. So, thank you everybody, uh and we'll talk soon.